Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Orlando Congresswoman Val Demings announces she's challenging Marco Rubio. Governor Ron DeSantis' administration faces a slew of court challenges. And former President Donald Trump is planning a big event in Florida. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and those are some of the stories I'll be discussing today with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins. But first, that music means it's number time. Gentlemen, you have some numbers here, Antonio? Yeah, I'm going to go with 95 this week. All right. How about you, John? Zach, I'm weighing in with a whopper of a number this week. It's 130,000. All right, and I'm going to go below both of those with a three. That's 95 for Antonio, 130,000 for John, and three for me. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, Democrats gunning to unseat Marco Rubio scored a big-time recruit this week when Orlando Congresswoman Val Demings jumped into the race. Demings is an African-American former police chief who came from humble origins as the daughter of a maid and a janitor, a biography that has similarities to Rubio, who also played up his working class roots. Antonio, this is shaping up to be really one of the biggest races in the country in 2022. Yeah, you know, as Mike Binder, the, the pollster at the University of North Florida put it, it's a big deal. And it will, he said, guarantee a high turnout, high interest election. Look, this matchup is no surprise. We've been talking about this possibility now for some time. But now that it's here, and even just the first day of this heavyweight match did not disappoint. And it will be a heavyweight bout, not just among the candidates, but also among Florida electorates. They, they yeah. went after each other from day one, right? They did. They did with uh, first uh, Rubio issued that press release. Actually, Deming started it by, with the, her video. And then Rubio responded with the press release. And then by the end of the day, uh, Demings had done a sort of a, a brief call with reporters. And one of the things that she raised was that, you know, she has a long career in public service uh, as a police officer and then police chief and doing that for 27 years. While basically, she said Rubio had been just in the career in, in the uh, a, a career politician, more or less, and say it that way. But that's what she meant. Look, and but I, I think one of the interesting things about this race will be the battle of electorates. You know, you have to believe Demings, who you mentioned is, is black, is going to generate a major turnout of black voters. And we saw how black voters in Florida helped, you know, Joe Biden win the Florida primary and how, you know, they, you know, they, they've actually been long, a, a kind of a missing element in some of these midterm elections, but you got to expect they're going to come out big next year. And then you have Marco Rubio, who's the son of Cuban exiles, and he's going to draw out a lot of Cuban-American and conservative Hispanics. And you know, that's that's an area that he's had some success with already throughout his political career. So, you know, here it is. And, you know, the, the attacks came, like we talked earlier, came early with the attacks uh, uh, by Demings on Rubio saying that he lacked courage and, you know, Rubio turned around and saying that, you know, that uh, Demings was a puppet of Nancy Pelosi, you know, and there may be primaries first, but the, the battle lines in this uh, likely Rubio Demings face off uh, were, were quickly drawn on Wednesday. Um, you know, as we mentioned, Demings is a decades long career law enforcement officer before joining Congress. So she's going to provide a, a kind of a challenge for Rubio and making it harder for Republicans to paint her as this anti-police radical. Uh 
you know, and in fact, Demings immediately pushed back on GOP criticism that she will seek to slash police agency budgets. As she said in that call yesterday, you know, that she doesn't believe she said defunding the police is not the answer. And she said, I've been strong on that. Um, and she said, what actually with people in quote unquote crime ridden neighborhoods, what they don't want to see is fewer police officers. What they want is just to be treated with respect and dignity. Uh, you know, Demings also took aim at Rubio with that video, the interest interspersed, interspersed uh, photos of Rubio with former President Trump and U.S. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and even a clip of Rubio's 2016 presidential debate stumbling um, and claimed that, you know, Rubio, like I said, he, he lacked the courage to fight things like voter suppression and, and embracing tired talking points. Now, on the other hand, you know, Rubio can make the argument that, in fact, he, he is not one of the more um, that he's not someone who's been embracing backward solutions. And in fact, the Luger Center and Georgetown University's uh, bipartisan index ranked him high, 13th out of 100 U.S. senators in working in the Senate to achieve bipartisan results. And in fact, Rubio this year also helped push the nomination of former Democratic U.S. Senate colleague Bill Nelson to lead NASA. So, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of what we saw yesterday was a lot of hyperbole, too. But one thing we can expect uh, in this campaign will be a lot of attack ads. This race is going to attract a lot of money and a lot of national attention. Uh, statewide races have been an uphill for climb for Democrats in the past 20 years, and 22 will be a tough haul. But I would say something at this point about, you know, something platitudish about, you know, we'll have, we'll have to see how this rolls out, except we are there. 20, 2022 is here already, so it's game on. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, that Demings is using the same argument that Rubio used against Charlie Crist when when Rubio ran against him in 2010 and called him sort of a a career politician establishment type, and Rubio was sort of the uh, the upstart, uh, you know. And now Demings is saying that you know Rubio is, is a, a career politician type. Um, you know, it, it seems like you know something like that is gonna. Um, you know, it, 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 Rubio doesn't have necessarily that line of attack against her. He's kind of trying to paint her as a bit of a a radical, saying that she's voted a hundred percent with Nancy Pelosi. What do you what do you think about that? That's kind of a line of attack that has been. Um, you know, pretty prominent uh, amongst, uh, you know, Republicans trying to levy, uh, you know, trying to describe Democrats as socialists, radicals, um, you know, tie them to this defund the police. As you mentioned, you know, she's a police chief, so that could be a, a hard thing to to pin on her. But, um, you know, do you think that uh, that her, uh, you know, her involvement in, in the two impeachments and, and uh, you know, her, you know, being, um, you know, sort of, you uh, I don't I don't know how close she is with uh, Pelosi in in the House, but uh, I mean, sort of part of the 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 sort of the, you know, Pelosi wing of the party that that does that um, hurt her at all? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I think in Florida, if you look at, first of all, that socialist label, we saw last year how lethal it was to Democrats um, and, and not just the fact that Trump won the state by three point two percent or so, which was is a landslide by Florida numbers. In addition to that, they lost those two House seats in South Florida, and they won seats that were vacant. So Republicans did. So, And, and they largely used that attack line. So it, it is a tried and true and proven strategy in Florida. With Demings, it's going to be harder because the, you know she's a 30-year law enforcement officer. And the fact of the matter is Republicans have been showing a lot of respect and deference to law enforcement. That's, that's one of their constituencies. Now, 
what he might find success with instead is what you just mentioned, the fact uh, that Lemmings was involved in the impeachment of Trump and not only involved in the impeachment, but as a member of the, both the House Judiciary and the Intelligence Committees. But in the first impeachment over that Ukraine phone call, uh, Demings was one of the House managers that prosecuted the case in the Senate. So she really went after Trump. And that's something that I think Rubio in a general election against her in, in trying to keep the Republican base, particularly the Trump base, really behind them and whipping up, up their support and making sure that they remain lockstep behind them. That's something that's an attack line that will be you have to assume would be very successful trying you know, to get MAGA nation to come out to vote as a measure of retribution toward Demings for her role in impeaching Trump the first time. All right. Well, as Florida's 22 races heat up, Governor Ron DeSantis has been out promoting all the bills that he championed this legislative session, including many addressing hot button culture war issues. But as DeSantis takes a victory lap, his critics are preparing to challenge him in court. John, you've been uh, looking into some of these court cases that are in the works. What have you found? Yeah, well, you know, as anyone who puts on Fox News knows, uh, DeSantis is drawing praise from conservatives and he's pulling in campaign cash from donors across the nation, but he's also attracting a, a crush of lawsuits that have been brought on by, by this polarizing legislation that he has signed into law. Now, now, you know, opponents say that the outcome of these lawsuits will be uh, pivotal, not just what what is happening in Florida, you know, affecting these new laws, but also kind of blunting this wave of copycat measures that you're seeing spread across uh, other Republican-led states. Um, they also say that it's going to be a test to the federal courts where uh, uh, these lawsuits have, have landed. Roughly 30 percent of the judges on the federal courts of appeal. Now, this is where most cases ultimately uh, are decided. Uh, the, the, those That 30 percent has been appointed by Trump, who we all know is an ardent ally of uh, DeSantis. So, so, you know, lawsuits have been filed against the, the anti-protest bill that DeSantis signed way back in early May. That was from the ACLU and a host of civil rights groups. Um, the ACLU also is trying to overturn uh, the new $3,000 limits on campaign contributions to uh, citizen-led ballot initiatives, uh, the approach that you know many have used to get around things the legislature wouldn't do, like expanding medical marijuana, felons voting rights, minimum wage increases, and uh, spending on environmental programs. So uh, you know, there are also new lawsuits against the uh, strict uh, the, the elections law that the governor signed, that's uh, discouraging the use of mail-in voting and drop boxes. The social media regulations that DeSantis signed as well. Um, DeSantis's legislative agenda basically has been condemned as, as, as violating the U.S. Constitution's free speech, equal protection, and uh, interstate commerce provisions. And uh, another lawsuit is expected very soon to uh, overturn a new uh, DeSantis sought law that bans transgender female athletes from playing uh, women's sports in Florida at the high school and college level. Uh, DeSantis, remember, uh, he signed that bill June 1st, the first day of the nationwide LGBTQ uh, Pride Month, which uh, opponents saw as a clear slap at a at a cohort that largely votes Democratic. Um, you know, of course, DeSantis, who's up for re-election next year and is, is widely talked of as a potential 2024 presidential contender. Um, he, he's just cresting on the success of this right now. He, uh, he's been attending a half dozen fundraisers this week across Southern California 
padding his campaign cash on hand account. And uh, he already had about almost $32 million at the end of April. That was the most recent finance report with uh, state officials. Um, and his fundraising is clearly outpacing two Democratic challengers who recently announced their candidacy. That's uh, Ag Commissioner uh, Nikki Freed and U.S. Rep. Charlie Chris, the former Republican governor. So, uh, you know, DeSantis' supporters, of course, see, see no problems with these Florida laws. And it's it's likely the governor is going to win with this conservative voting base, even if, you know, judges ultimately reject some of these measures. But with uh, many of the laws enacted by DeSantis also being mirrored in dozens of bills that have advanced by Republican legislators in many states. You know, so some critics see the governor as, as, as more of an opportunist than trailblazer on some of these things. Uh, they point out that DeSantis's top issues basically track themes that you hear on conservative media all the time, which, uh, you know, the, the conservative media is so intent on keeping alive Trump's view that vote fraud cost him the White House and that society is largely threatened by the Black Lives Movement and the political left. So uh, DeSantis, um, uh, when he signed that social media legislation last month, uh, uh, you know, this, he, he sees these new laws as just bolstering the reputation that Florida earned during the COVID-19 pandemic when, remember, he he opposed statewide lockdowns and mask requirements, and uh, he got a lot of attention for that. DeSantis, uh, in signing that social media uh, bill, said, we are effectively America's West Berlin. People view us as a free zone. So um, DeSantis is capitalizing as much as he can on this, but he's got a few dates in court certain to, uh, to possibly uh, intrude on whether or not he can uh, portray himself as completely successful on some of these, you know, ardently right uh, uh, bills that have so far made it through a very compliant Republican legislature. But even if the courts strike these down, you, you you mentioned you think he's already pretty much won with his conservative base. I mean, from a policy standpoint, these court cases obviously matter a lot. But from a political standpoint, this isn't really going to hurt him politically if the courts uh, you know kick these out, is it? I don't think so. Yeah, just as uh, you were saying a moment ago with Antonio about the uh, the tried and true tactics that you see from candidates, uh, the um, you know painting the opponent as uh, as a, a scary liberal. Uh, in this case, it, it, that's another uh, regular tactic of uh, politicians, where if you can't get this uh, legislation through somehow because of the courts, well, then you blame. The, the liberal judiciary or something like that, even though, you know, a big chunk of that judiciary now has been appointed by President Trump. Well, uh, speaking of President Trump, he's uh, overshadowing uh, the upcoming election in a very big way and he continues to be a, a potent force in the GOP. He may not be on social media, but he still fires off press releases with his endorsements and other musings. And he started to venture out and hold more events again. He spoke to the North Carolina Republican uh, Party convention last weekend. And this week he announced an upcoming schedule event with former Fox News personality Bill O'Reilly at an arena uh, in Broward County, where you live, Antonio. Uh, there was more Trump family news this week as well when the uh, former president's daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, announced that she's not running for a Senate seat in North Carolina. Antonio, you're an expert Trump watcher. What do you make of these week, the, the, the events this week? 
Well, where do we start, man? The, the former president is up in New Jersey this summer, but the focus is still very much on Florida. Look, uh, let's talk on, let's talk about the, uh, the O'Reilly uh, history tour. On Tuesday, he and O'Reilly announced a series of history tour conversations, and they will kick off here, like you mentioned, in Sunrise, Florida. But then a day later, they added another appearance in Central Florida, a little closer to you, Zach. So, Because I know, gentlemen, I'm telling you right now, this we have to see. <laughs> because the one thing the one thing we know about Trump is he has little patience for these types of sit down, introspective, yeah. soul searching discussions. I'm really curious about that. I mean, like, you know, he's known for these rallies and, uh, you know, the kind of sit down conversation about history seems a little bit off brand. Yeah, he, he's all about political WrestleMania, you know, playing to the raucous crowd, ready to break out into lock someone up chance. And in fact, as I was reporting on this, I actually thought about you, Zach, that, that one Tampa rally that you covered and you mentioned that at the very beginning, they had told him to stick to the script and people kind of looked bored. And then he went to his, you know, lock somebody up chance and into the, the, the list of grievances and people got all fired up. And so that's, you know, that's, that's what he enjoys and that's what he feeds off. But that is not the way, for example, that O'Reilly is talking about these events. O'Reilly was interviewed by a Chicago conservative radio station Wednesday, and when asked if he had seen Trump's speech in North Carolina, O'Reilly just tersely responded no, and then there's this short, awkward silence. Then O'Reilly then bluntly said that the history tour is not about politics. And in a press release, what it said was they would discuss exactly how things were accomplished as well as challenges. And in a statement, O'Reilly said, you know, conversations with Trump would not be, quote unquote, boring. But here's the thing. That kind of policy wonkish play-by-play lookbacks work for former presidents who have accepted their former president club membership. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama have done these kinds of events. But Trump is not about looking back. I mean, he's angling for a 2024 combat campaign. The last thing Trump is going to want to do is sit down on the stage with anyone and be asked to explain why he told Bob Woodward that he knew coronavirus is going to be bad or why he thought drinking disinfectants was a good idea, let alone whether he should have told that crowd on January 6th you know, to march to the Capitol, lest we forget, with him. He doesn't want to rehash past train wrecks. Yeah, he'd be happy to talk about tax reform and the tax cuts, and he'd be happy to talk about forcing European allies to pony up more money for defense, and now he got stories to wish you a Merry Christmas. Yeah, he'll do that, but not for more, for more than a few minutes. Then it's back to the fight for Trump, Trump chance. He wants to talk about how Biden is blowing up the border and driving up gasoline prices. And now, you know, the election was stolen from him by bamboo stuffed ballots in Arizona. You know, maybe Trump's moderator should be Jerry Springer instead. Still, you know, when it comes to the history tour, count me in just as I had to watch that North Carolina speech for the sideshow aspect, which, of course, brings me to Trump's speech Saturday night to the North Carolina Republican Party. OK, look, I'm going to make a confession here. I watched the former president's speech to see if he would say something about that latest conspiracy theory from the bleacher seats, you know, that nonsense about being reinstated to the presidency in August. I didn't think he would be out there to repeat it, but I wouldn't want to miss a moment if he were to say it. And of course, he didn't. You know, he, he stuck to his, his list of grievances. But the real news, of course, wasn't that what Trump said, but that what daughter-in-law Laura Trump said, specifically that she will not seek that U.S. Senate seat that will become vacant in North Carolina next year. Now, Lara Trump is married to Trump's son, Eric, and early last month, the couple bought a home in Jupiter. The purchase made Florida already the Trumpiest state in America, even more MAGA red. But it also telegraphed that she probably was not going to launch that long, 
speculated campaign up in uh, in the Carolinas. The North Carolina race would have been a difficult challenge. Look, I lived in North Carolina and I know a few things about the state and its politics. And the speculation is, yes, Lara would have cruised to the GOP nomination, but winning a general election, even in a state that Trump has won twice, was still going to be far from certain. North Carolina's demographics are changing with a lot of growth, a lot of influx of people. Uh, while Florida is going crimson, North Carolina is more purple. In addition, there is speculation that the Trump political brand among critical independent-minded swing voters was damaged by his, his management or mismanagement of the pandemic and the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Then there is a criminal investigation of the Trump family business, the Trump organization. Charges against a company, at the very least, would be a major distraction for a campaign operation. Then, of course, as Laura Trump said herself, she has two small children and juggling a U.S. US Senate seat may have been too much of a lift. One other thing, in her remarks to in North Carolina, Laura Trump, who is a North Carolina native, told graduates of the state's top university, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, not to get too excited because she is a rival NC State Wolfpack alum. Now, as a UNC alum myself, I can only respond to Larry that she shouldn't get too excited either because the state's nickname is the Tar Heel State. That's All right. Lots of Trump world developments uh, this week. Uh, stay tuned for more on the, the Trump O'Reilly history tour. I'm sure Antonio will be uh, diving into that uh, in future podcasts. We'll move on to some numbers here. John, you want to tell us about yours? I do. My 130000 is dollars. And that's what Visit Florida is getting for performance raises to distribute among members of its uh, roughly 76-person staff. It was uh, handed out to everybody. Uh, it, it, well, if, if it was handed out to everybody, it, it'd be about $1,500 a person. Um, and the tourist agency's president and CEO, uh, Dana Young, she's a former Republican legislator, she got an 8% pay raise and a $7,500 bonus all this week from visit Florida's board of directors who are meeting in person for the first time since uh, pre-pandemic. Now, uh, the, the money to this public-private agency is going to, uh, uh, well, the money for these salary increases anyway is going to come from uh, private sources who contribute. Uh, they're mostly people from the industries, from the, the, the travel and tourism uh, world. But um, money is money. And, uh, and the agency staff and its leaders are, are doing pretty well despite tourism numbers that, you know, no surprise, uh, anybody walking around Florida realizes uh, that they're not so hot. Uh, domestic and international visitors to Florida are down 14% uh, for the first quarter of this year. That's compared to last year, uh, a time when the COVID-19 pandemic uh, was just starting to kick in in Florida. Uh, overseas travel is still down a sizable 74% this year compared to that first quarter last year. So, you know, you know, you may be asking yourself, why give pay raises and performance bonuses when the performance isn't so hot? Well, the, the, the board seems to rationalize that by saying, you know, well, it's private money. Uh, and one board member who works for Universal Studios said that Florida should be embarrassed by what it pays its officials. Uh, Dana Young, the agency head, was getting $175,000 a year. That's now going to go up to $189,000. Uh, and, and staff members uh, apparently haven't had a pay raise since 2019. But in a state where so much of the tourist industry is still limping along, it, it, it does seem like the agency and its board of directors are maybe a little tone deaf to uh, the state of Florida's economy. But, you know, like so much of the, the corporate world, including 
the, the newspaper industry we on this podcast know and love so well, uh, a company's performance seems to be rarely directly connected to the kind of cash that it hands out to those in the, uh, in the C-suite. Yeah, those Visit Florida folks better watch out. I remember not too long ago when uh, uh, conservatives in the Florida House were targeting some of these uh, state economic development agencies. That's and right. The need for them. This could put some heat on them. Uh, Antonio, you had a 95. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, 95 as in 95%. And 95% is the percentage of passengers and crew on, on a cruise ship uh, that should be vaccinated before against COVID before that ship set sail, according to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Guidelines. This is a standard the industry, like I said last week, seems to be accepting. Carnival Cruise Line has embraced it, as has Norwegian Cruise Lines. So has uh, Bahamas Paradise Cruises, which does two-day sailings to Grand Bahama out of the port of Palm Beach. Now, on the other hand, Royal Caribbean Cruises is making passenger inoculation optional. Now, I mentioned last week, because I'm kind of picking off where I left off last week in last week's number, I mentioned that there seems to have been this accommodation when it comes to the cruise lines and this issue of vaccine passports in Florida's ban, meaning that cruise lines had settled on vaccination policies in the hopes of finally setting off on the high seas and getting this nearly $10 billion Florida industry and its 150,000 Florida workers back to work. No. I think most people understand that cruise lines and cruises are an anomaly. They're unlike most other businesses because of the unique characteristics that you're on a ship, you're out at sea. It's a lot of people in close proximity. It's different than many other businesses like theme parks or movie theaters or even, you know, a pro sports event. Most people understand that, but Governor Ron DeSantis remains very unhappy with it. And last Thursday, the governor fired back with another sharply worded press release attacking the CDC for its guidelines and its insistence on vaccine unvaccinated passengers and crew members. Interestingly, the governor's press release did not mention the cruise lines that had agreed to the CDC requirement, nor did he address the question of whether those cruise lines will face fines. Perhaps the governor's hope is that he wins the state's lawsuit against the CDC, making him a hero in the eyes of vaccine recalcitrants and mega deep state haters everywhere. In the meantime, some cruise lines like NCL and Carnival say they will go ahead with ships full of vaccinated adults and a 5% allotment for children under the age of that, uh, the, 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 uh, under the vaccination threshold age. Others are chiming in, including the governor of the U.S. Virgin Islands, who has asked DeSantis and Florida lawmakers to reconsider the ban on vaccine passports for cruise lines, again, recognizing the uniqueness of their situation. Um, the question is, what happens if the state's lawsuit against the CDC is not successful? Does that de facto void the Florida law banning vaccine passports? And what happens with theme parks and pro sports teams and movie theaters if the cruise lines get are allowed to get away with ignoring the ban of vaccine passports at the Florida seaports was to keep a central full of theme park from saying or declaring on weekends that they are going to go with 100% occupancy of vaccinated guests or a sports team saying they'll set aside the entire lower bowl of a stadium for vaccinated fans to, so they can boost capacity and arena revenues. I, I don't know the answer to these things, but we have not heard the last on this yet. And it's political implications for DeSantis who continues to double down on a policy that, at least for cruise ships, is broadly seen as counterproductive. Then again, 
That has been the governor's strategy from the start of a reopening of business from the pandemic a year ago, whether it's schools reopening or taking the clamps off bars and restaurants, the governor has pursued a high risk, high reward strategy, and it has paid off for him politically. So we'll see. All right. More skirmishes in the vaccine passport wars here in Florida. My number is three. That's the number of Florida bridges that the State Department of Transportation has refused to light in rainbow colors in honor of LGBTQ Pride Month. Florida's own version of Bridgegate came to light when Sarasota Mayor Hagen Brody complained that state officials were denying his request to light the city's Ringling Bridge. But the controversy really blew up when state officials ordered a local bridge authority in Jacksonville to stop lighting that city's Acosta Bridge in rainbow colors. LGBTQ advocates say a request also was denied to light the Sunshine Skyway Bridge over Tampa Bay. After a community outcry in Jacksonville, the Florida Department of Transportation later backtracked and allowed that bridge to be lit in rainbow colors, but Sarasota's bridge still is not lit. While FDOT officials say they were just following policy when it comes to the lights, some are blaming Governor Ron DeSantis, noting that he controls the state Department of Transportation. And DeSantis had been under fire already from the LGBTQ community for signing a bill that bans transgender female athletes from competing in women's sports. And he signed it on the first day of Pride Month. Bridge lights might seem like a relatively small issue, but some LGBTQ advocates view the lights as a symbolic of larger concerns about whether state leaders and the DeSantis administration are supportive of their community. They argue that Florida has made big strides in equality, but still has not come as far as some would like. For example, uh, Florida still doesn't include LGBTQ individuals as a protected class, meaning they are not protected from discrimination in housing and employment. Lights would help provide a visible symbol that the LGBTQ community is accepted, they say. Well, that wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. Thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.